Sci-Fi and Fantasy Light and Dark is hosted by Anna Rose, the author of The Tales of the Dragon Guard and The Shimari Web. In addition to Anna, the cast will feature guest authors with discussions of their own work, the state of the genre, its history, its possible future, and more. Be aware that casts may include profanity. In addition, religion and politics may be discussed as they pertain to the genre, but care will be taken to keep those subjects as neutral as possible. With it being October 1st, it's Halloween season, with all the spookiness and magic that this season brings. For some, it's a time of ghosts and goblins and spooks, while for others, it's a time for memories and reflection, but whatever your take on it, you can't miss it. It's been a huge part of the holiday landscape in the Western world for well over a century at this point, if for no other reason than the big stores out there started selling Halloween decorations and candy at the end of July. Because Halloween, I suppose. I'm already seeing Yuletide decorations on sale at larger department stores, which is, but I digress. Time to get back on track. Please forgive me. I write fantasy mostly, and some of that fantasy includes aspects of horror. Not the hack and slash stuff, but horror that is more cerebral in nature. Horror at the situation, not the content of that situation. It can be a fine line, but it is what it is. The kind of horror that we'll address on this podcast is the paranormal kind of horror rather than the saw kind of horror porn that is also out there. Vampires, ghosts, mysterious things, that sort of writing. I'll leave horror porn to those who write and enjoy it. This week's guest is author, musician, and all-round Renaissance woman, M.M. Genet. Her latest novel, The Harpist, was released just this last month. She also writes erotica, but that's not the direction of this podcast. Sorry about that. Um, do I call you M.M. or do I call you Michelle, as you also write as Michelle Roger? Such a woman of mystery. Which do you prefer? Oh, call me Michelle. I will call you Michelle, then. Is there a particular reason you write different genres under different names? I'm assuming it's not just some wild idea on your part. Um, usually speculative fiction and romance are not good bedfellows. <clears throat> no pun intended. Um... <laughs> Um, usually strictly women, some men, some men, but mostly women read romance and they do not, they will not pick up a book by a horror or science fiction writer. And in reverse, um, men typically have a hard time buying books that are written by women if it's speculative fiction. And if they're known as a, as a romance writer, they certainly won't buy their book. So Hence, the two, the two sides, the two names. That makes sense. So, as you also write as Michelle Roger, uh, what have you written as for your as as Michelle that, that that our listeners would enjoy listening to or reading? Um. So, if you if you like really good a really good scare, yes. Um, I wrote a book called The Conservatory, which is about a mad scientist in a private. Uh, music conservatory where mm -hmm. the, the students start going up missing. That's really just a total horror novel. Um, oh. And then more recently, I wrote um, a novel <clears throat> called Eternal Kingdom, which is a vampire story that's surrounded by a game of chess. One-on-one -on -one chess. And you can play the game through move by move through as you read the book. 
Oh, wow. I don't know if you listened to last week's podcast, but uh, I interviewed Rowan Green, who is doing a series uh, where someone is pulled into a tarot deck. Oh. So that's kind of what this makes me, yeah, that's kind of cool to, to, to get that. That's how, I mean, it, it sounds amazing. I, I definitely would, would encourage uh, listeners to find those and, and read those because it definitely sounds interesting. Um, and the, the mad scientist part, wouldn't you like to just see an irritable scientist? You know, not really well, mad, uh, just, 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 just a little testy. I think that that would be a nonfiction book. I don't know. I, I, I wonder about that. I've listened um, to pages. Anyway. <laughs> what part of the country do you live in? Uh, does that color any of the stories you tell? I live in Detroit, and so all of my books take place either in Detroit or in Michigan. Mm-hmm. Um, and the girl, the female, is almost always the hero, and mm-hmm. she almost always, always, always wins. Well, that's good. Um, and uh, do you do much traveling at all? Because you say that you write in, in, you know, Detroit stuff. I would, you know, if you do travel. I do. I do travel. Um, my husband is from New Zealand, and so we've mm. been back and forth there a few times. And my family's in France, um, and I write for Search Magazine, where I write their travel oh. and food columns. So I've nice. had the opportunity to, you know, write and travel, and it's kind of a that's part of a dream come true. But the stories, when they come to me, usually are local. Have you ever considered doing one of those sabbaticals where you go off and write abroad? I know that you heard about Amtrak's uh, resident writer program, where basically they, basically you end up write, writing the train and you write as you travel across country. No, but I think as soon as we're done here, I will be checking it out. <laughs> I thought it was interesting. So um, I, I, I like to, to, to invite our, our guests to uh, do a reading from something that they're working on or they've already got. Do you have any idea what you'll be reading for us this week? Um, I thought I would read you an excerpt from the book The Harpist that just was released uh, last week. Oh, very cool. I look forward to uh, to hearing that and listening. Um, so what are you working on now since you say you just finished with The Harpist? What's next on the burner? Um, I have a couple of short stories that I've been working on, and then um, this the, the Harpist has a sequel called The Detective. And I'm hoping to release that. Well, I'd like to release it in the spring. So I'm starting to work on that as well. A little bird told me that you might be working on child children's books type things. Is that true? I do. I write a Mr. Kiwi series, which is helps children solve just everyday problems um, that they face. I write that under uh, Michelle Beresford, which... Um, the book stars my husband, Mr. Kiwi, who is a Kiwi. No, really? Zealand. <laughs> so, um, The Trouble with Mr. Moedal is the first book in the series, and it's about um, um, a little boy who doesn't want to help clean up the soccer field, and so he programs his homemade robot to do it. And um, <laughs> the course. robot goes absolutely crazy and mows through the entire town, of, you know, Mrs. Smith's roses mows through a shoe and a car and there's a cat that gets stuck on top of the robot and they go through town and the town is wrecked by the time um, Mr. Kiwi and his dog Boomer 
come around oh. and muster the robot into um, submission. And so um, that's, that's almost science fiction. Yes, well, that's all, but it's about working together. And then the, all of the soccer team has to get together to clean it all up. So um, the next one um, is about standing up, standing together with your friends to stand up to a bully. You know, those might be really good books for audiobooks because I would think those would be good stories for children maybe to listen to when they're laying down for a nap or something like that. That's possible. That's a possibility. And, right now I've just been writing and painting them, but yeah, recording them as an audiobook is a great idea. Well, you certainly have a good voice for it. I think you've got a nice warm voice, and I, I think oh, that uh, listeners would like that a lot. I appreciate that coming off of the end of bronchitis. <laughs> So it's not a smoker's voice. It's a, no, it's the eyes with the ill voice. Normally, this Kathleen Turner. <laughs> At least it's not the Brenda Vaccaro voice. No, no. Or you sound like this. Or no, that's the Marge Simpson voice, I suppose. There you go. <laughs> anyway, I really want to thank you, Michelle, for for coming onto the podcast uh, today, and I look forward to sharing your reading from the Harpist with our listeners and. Uh, it's again. It's been wonderful. I, I hope you consider uh, coming to play here again. I uh, would certainly love to have you and hear what's going on. And uh, even if you just like to come by and just you know shoot the breeze or whatever, that's cool that too. Sounds, that sounds great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's all mine. Uh, and I will bid you adieu for now. And thank you again. Thank Good you. Evening. And now, as promised, a sample from the harpist. Written by M.M. Genet. From The Harpist by Michelle Roger and M.M. Genet. Maybe they'd send the police. Maybe some kind of special senatorial invoked security would arrive. Maybe Judy Brady herself would come and pound on her door with a bag of kindling that she'd made after throwing Aiden and the wood chipper in a fit of rage. Either way, Elizabeth had done the unspeakable. Worse than the unspeakable. She had left a paid performance which was completely unacceptable as well as unprofessional. To add insult to injury, the performance had been a memorial for a teenage girl. And if that wasn't bad enough, Elizabeth reminded herself, that girl was the daughter of a senator. The ultimate sin was that she had left poor Aiden, her beloved harp, behind. How could you, she asked herself, sobbing as her hands propped up her forehead. She told herself, everything was fixable. Well, maybe. The Bradys might sue her for money she clearly didn't have, but really, a trip to small claims court was nothing when she thought about it. The worst thing imaginable was that she'd left her harp, who was sick for all she knew. Her guilt made her stomach roll. How could she get him back? She picked up her phone, letting her finger hover over the screen. Should she call Kathleen again? Why wasn't she answering? It was an emergency, and she needed her best friend. A knock at the door sent Elizabeth's phone landing with thud on the kitchen table as she ran to open the door. She swung it open and burst into tears of relief simultaneously. Catherine! As she stood in the door, all of the air depleted from her lungs. It wasn't Catherine. Nor was it the men in black like she'd imagined, 
but instead it was the handsomest man she had ever met. Mr. Blue Eyes was a memorial. His left hand sat perched high on Aiden, while his right hand was holding a badge. Elizabeth rolled her eyes. You're a cop? She answered her own question. Of course you're a cop. That's how my look rolls. Did the Brady send you here to arrest me for some kind of failure to complete a contract or something? I mean, he's a senator, so he can have me arrested for something like that, right? Does that actually work? Elizabeth could hear herself shift into babble mode, but there was no shutting it off. The words were flying from her mouth in a deluge of panic and emotional exhaustion. I pay taxes so Senator Brady can represent me in government, but then, with all the power I gave him, he can send someone, she stammered, her hand waving him up and down, as well a, a lawful and person like yourself here to just arrest me for doing nothing. Her inner voice chimed in. And I'd happily go with you wherever you asked. Detective Flannery held up his hands in surrender. Hey, 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 slow down, relax. I'm going to put my badge back in my pocket and carry this beautiful harp over your threshold, if that's okay. You're asking me, Elizabeth spat. She thought to herself, can you carry me over the threshold? I'm asking you. Technically, I don't have a warrant, so you don't have to let me in. I just wanted to return your harp and make sure you were okay. Elizabeth ran over the threshold and grabbed Aiden with a strength and accuracy that shocked Detective Flannery. She set the harp down roughly beside her and shouted, I'm fine. And with that, she slammed the door. Her chest heaved, and for lack of better thought, she wrapped her arms around her harp. Pipes could feel her beating harp against the thin, sensitive soundboard as she pulled him close. He was careful this time not to reach out to her, creating the electrical current between them. Instead, he merely reassured her as he whispered, It's okay. It's going to be okay. Elizabeth jumped back. From the end of the path that led to the door, Mike heard the harp fall and Elizabeth scream. Before he had time to decide if it was a good idea, Detective Flannery found himself bursting through her door and holding out a protective arm in front of her as he searched the room for an intruder. His gun drawn and holding steadily as his hand, he slowly stood up and checked each of her windows. He gently picked the harp up and set it back on its feet. Pipes felt humiliated in his returned upright state, and Flannery sunk to his knees before Elizabeth. Let's try this again, a bit more slowly. Hi, I'm Detective Mike Flannery. He held his hand out. Elizabeth bit the bottom of her lip sheepishly as she reached out. Elizabeth O'Toole. Mike stood up and pulled her gently to her feet. He should have asked her to sit down and answer a few questions. He should have asked her what she knew about the death of Emma Brady. He should have read her the required Miranda rights and told her that she should have an attorney present. And he should have done all those things. But he didn't. Instead, he brushed the long, messy strands of her red hair out of her face with, that was mixed with her tears, and then he stared into her frightened gray eyes and whispered, Well, Miss O'Toole, you seem to be having a tough day. You strike me as a rather successful woman. Elizabeth wiped away the rest of her tears. She led the way to the retro kitchen, where she pulled herself up onto the counter to sit 
and pointed to a green and chrome-studded chair for Mike. She blew her nose as he took off his jacket. As I was saying, you seem like a woman who has it together. What could possibly frighten you so much that you ran from a memorial leaving behind everything, including your harp? A wave of guilt and emotion rolled over her, and she fought hard to keep control. It was easier if she didn't look into his eyes. To look at him directly, she might confess everything she knew, but instead she stared at the floor. Her inner voice argued, Would it be so bad if he knew? She argued back, Hi, you're the sexiest man I've ever seen. I know I seem batshit crazy, but would you like to have dinner? Miss O'Toole, Oh, please, uh, call me Elizabeth. And to answer your question, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And even if I had it all straight in my head to tell you, quite, quite frankly, I'm nearly as confused as you are. Mike held his hand out. I'm fairly sure I have a cure for that. At least, what works for me. He held his hand out. Care to go for a drive? In your squad car? Elizabeth asked, skeptically. Uh, is there any other safer option? I mean, if you feel the slightest bit uncomfortable, you can always call for backup. How did he do it? No other man could have convinced her to leave the sanctuary of her house. But how could she say no to those eyes and that boyish grin? It was ridiculous. Nevertheless, she watched her own hand place itself in his. A harp string busted in that moment. Mike pulled his car into the bank parking lot and handed Elizabeth an envelope. I believe Mrs. Brady left this for you on the kitchen counter. You stole it? Elizabeth gasped. I confiscated it. You know, for evidence. There's a big difference. Elizabeth bit her lip and closed her eyes, clutching the envelope to her chest. When she opened her eyes, she shook her head and handed it back to Mike. I can't cash it in good conscience. Mike stared at her incredulously. He pushed her hand and the envelope back towards her. Trust me, they can afford it. Whatever they're paying you, they won't miss it. I'm sorry, Elizabeth blushed. I'm just saying, I know the Bradys, and you should just cash the damn check. She sat in her seat for a second with a stupid smile on her face. Then she slipped out of the car to head inside the bank. Just before she turned to leave, she poked her head in the passenger side window. Excuse me, officer, but beforehand, did you call me beautiful and successful? She didn't stay to wait for an answer. Money deposited within minutes, the two were heading back to her apartment. Mike knew his mother's trick of asking deep questions while trapping someone in a car was unfair, but it was necessary. So let me guess, Mike asked, a relative just died, or you saw your grandpa breathe his last when you were a little kid, something like that? Is that why you ran out of a memorial like you'd seen a ghost? Elizabeth was thankful that they were in a car and both facing the road. If she had to answer him, looking into those kind blue eyes, she was sure she wouldn't be able to keep herself from telling him everything. Instead, she turned to stare out the passenger side window silently. There's something in your voice that tells me you already have your own answer to that question. The face of Emma's ghost haunted her as she stared at her own partial reflection in the car window. It was connected to her harp, but she didn't know how. 
She wondered how crazy she'd sound if she told him everything from start to finish. And then there was poor Alan, too. She was convinced he had some sort of terrible experience when he'd examined the harp. She reminded herself to call Catherine when she got home. By the time the car came to a full stop, Elizabeth's heart was pounding, and there was a throbbing in her head. Her stomach rumbled, and it reminded her that she hadn't eaten all day. She turned to look directly at Mike, and then she faced him. He was taken aback by her expression. He could see it in her eyes that she was about to confess something, or at least wanted to. He brought the car to a complete stop. He leaned in slightly, making sure his body language conveyed that he was ready to listen. Or kiss her. He could imagine himself doing that, too. She was beautiful and smart, and at that moment, strangely and mysteriously, probably had something to hide. His favorite type. The Bluetooth from his phone rang over the radio speakers, making them both jump. Mike cursed under his breath, and Elizabeth turned towards the door, looking for a handle to open it. He touched her hand to get her attention. She looked at him in surprise to find him pressing his fingers to his lips. He pressed the green button on the screen. Flannery, what have you got? Coroner's report just came back, Mike. I'm texting you the summary page. With a mountain of painkillers and sleeping pills in her toxicology report, the ME ruled the death an unlikely accident. Probable cause will be labeled intentional overdose. She must have taken a couple bottles worth of this stuff. Mike coolly held Elizabeth's hand, gripping it to reassure her. He stared at her intently as she stared back. So that's it then? Nothing unusual? Just your average teenage suicide? Two things to consider, possibly. Marty's intonation sounded serious. Mike held Elizabeth's hand a little tighter, and this time she leaned back in the chair as if to assume that she wouldn't bolt. Forensics couldn't find any prints on the suicide note, Mike. It's bizarre. Most kids would text their parents and tell them to go F off. But this kid goes old school and writes a note. Then she tapes it to her bathroom mirror. Then all of that doesn't leave any prints? Forensics is retesting the sample now. I've got Griggs back over at the crime scene. Maybe she'll get a pair of gloves or a pen or something it was written with. I'll let you know as soon as she gets back. Mike sighed. Thanks, Marty. Oh yeah, one more thing, Mike. Your dad. Mike's stomach tightened. He hated anything that combined his family name with his job. Looks like Daddy Moneybags helped the Bradys get their kids' last two shoplifting and minor drug possession charges dismissed. Not taken under advisement, but completely dismissed? He couldn't hide the disappointment and agitation in his voice. No wonder John called him specifically. Last week, I shared a bit of The Thing in the Closet with you, and the response I've gotten from it has been, to say the least, quite gratifying. When the story began, I'm sure you believed that it would be just another scary story to make you look a bit askance at unknown shadows in a darkened room, or to make you nervous when you heard sounds around you that you were just not quite able to clearly identify. Instead, what you heard was a story based around the idea of what would happen if the thing in the closet and the monster under the bed suddenly found themselves tasked with the care and feeding of a human creature. I'm sure you were all very surprised to discover that it wasn't what you thought it was going to be at all. This is no Monsters Incorporated. There are no adult humans to whom whose care this little girl could be assigned. And if you really stop to think about it, 
the thing and the monster rely on little Emma's belief even to continue to exist. The three of them need one another, quite frankly, but you'll have to get the whole story once it's finished to see exactly what I mean. That's what an author should strive for, as far as I'm concerned. We need to step away from the old tropes and find new stories to tell. It can help a lot to have one or two good friends with whom you can share the new idea and bounce it off them for suggestions and other feedback. Where I live, and that's a bit more difficult of a task, as I live in the Los Angeles area, there are some people who are not above stealing others' ideas and pretending they are their own when they present them to a studio. There are lawsuits out there even now over the situation. Right now I'm working on a few different projects that range from fantasy to horror to not quite children's stories, which is where I would classify the thing in the closet. Sort of a Patrick Rothfuss idea without the sly twists included. You've had taste of my Tales of the Dragon Guard story, Cal's Heart, and last week it was the thing in the closet. Well, I'm also working on a short story about a young man in the apartment he rents. Cosenfola, the final novel in the Shumare web series, is still in production, albeit at a snail's pace, and another series that came about as a result of a character idea I came up with while writing the vampire series. Because I wanted to establish ownership of that character in his particular situation, I included him as a character in my Shumare web series of vampire novels. Why was I so excited about this character? He's a millennium-old vampire with an eidetic memory. Now, before you go scrambling to find out what that means, it means he has a perfect photographic memory. He remembers everything that has happened to and immediately around him for his thousand-year lifetime. That was something I had never before seen addressed, so my mind working the way it does, I thought more in his situation why he would be a vampire and what led to that development in the first place. My first thought was it would be a horrible situation for anyone. Imagine it. You're a vampire with a perfect memory. You're a thousand years old and you remember each and every person you've ever killed or eaten. You remember the sound of their voice, the clothes they wore, the situation that led up to things, every word or scream they uttered before you killed them. Hellish sounding, isn't it? And I made that idea mine in 2012. Is this a story that catches your interest? Please let me know what you think. Phelan has stories in him. Lots of stories. He only needs your interest to write them down for your enjoyment. With this our third podcast, I've decided that from now on, I will close the program with what you would call a bedtime story, consisting of the most recent chapter of The Thing in the Closet. If you haven't heard chapter one, you may well wish to go and listen to episode two of the podcast, where it first appeared for public consumption. Once it's completely finished, whenever that is, I'll publish it in one piece, but for now, you can listen to it here on the Sci-Fi and Fantasy Light and Dark podcast. And again, it's not what you might expect it to be. I hope you enjoy this latest installment at least half as much as I did writing it for you. The Thing in the Closet, Chapter 2 The Thing shook its head and put a paw over its mouth. When the child had dreamed up her thing and her monster, she had never considered having to talk with them, and there was no one doing that lack now. You can't talk? That's too bad, she replied. I guess I'll call you Thing, if that's okay. The monster next to Emma tapped her leg with a sucker-covered tentacle tip, requesting her attention and leaving a damp spot behind on her bare skin. You can't talk either, she asked. The monster just lay there, seeming to stare everywhere. I'll call you Monster. Appearing satisfied with this, the monster stroked Emma's leg once more and then slithered down off the bed and out into the darkness in the front room of the cottage. The thing noted that the monster left a trail of moisture behind it as it traversed the floor, then returned his attention to Emma. I'm hungry, she announced, leaving the thing nonplussed. 
What did she expect you to do? Prepare a meal for her? It did not eat, so cooking was not something it knew. As though answering its thoughts, the little girl slid off the thing's lap and followed the monster's fading trail into the other room. It heard her say something to the creature and then heard the front door being unlatched and opened. Concerned, the thing stood and went to join young Emma and the monster, who both huddled in the doorway, looking out into the forbidding night. The thing could smell the old scent of a dog long gone from the yard. The family's guard dog had run off more than a year before when given the opportunity, an empty stomach made for useful encouragement. I think Monster wants out, Thing, Emma declared. Was I right, Monster? The monster answered her question by moving out into the darkness with surprising speed for something with tentacles instead of normal legs. It seemed to be making its way to the creek that ran past the side of the cottage. Emma watched it for a few moments and then walked back into the house, leaving the door open. In case Monster needs to get back in, she explained to the thing, surprising it. Normally, children did not want monsters and things in their house. In the absence of her mother, Emma had latched on to something different and new. The thing went to the kitchen and looked around, finding nothing that seemed appropriate for a human child to eat. Pausing to look down into the egg bowl, it considered them for only a moment before deciding against them. Able to reach into the higher cupboards because of its greater height, it found only dusty shelves with forgotten or ignored dishes and knickknacks all inedible. It was about to give up when the monster slithered back inside, a fish clasped in a pair of sucker tentacles held high over the monster's shapeless head. It gave the slimy fish to the thing and then slithered outside again on some other errand. The thing and Emma looked down at the fish. It was a strange looking thing, even for a fish. Flat bodied, its eyes appeared to be on only one side of its head instead of one on each side. The girl said she'd never before seen anything like it. It has fins, so I suppose it's still a fish, which are good to eat, she noted. We haven't had fish in a very long time. Mama said there weren't any in the water to catch. Realizing that the monster had brought the fish for the child, the thing put it on a plate before giving it over to the small human. She stared down at it and looked back up at the thing. Mama would have cleaned it first, she said. Could you clean it for me? The thing picked up the plate again and regarded the fish again. Dead eyes stared back at it, mouth gaping in a gasp that would never come. The idea of cleaning the fish had never before occurred to it, but then it all made sense. Turning it over, the thing ran a sharp claw tip up the fish's pale belly and removed its innards, which it dumped on the tabletop, followed by the creature's scaly skin. The little girl recoiled at the sight of the pile of offal. You can have that, she said with finality, waving a dismissive hand at the mound of scaled skin and other gore. I'm sure that things and monsters love them. The thing put the plate down in front of Emma, waiting for her response. It doesn't taste too bad, she said from around a mouthful of raw fish. It seemed she had had enough previous experience eating fish to avoid the tiny bones that riddled the pale pink flesh. Thank you. Going to the pile of innards and outards on the counter, the thing picked up a bit of it between two claws and sniffed at it. Natural creature food had never been something that interested the thing, but this might be interesting. Making a brave decision, it put the sloppy sample into its mouth to top its broad red tongue. The result was almost electric. Taste buds that had never before experienced such a thing exploded with sensation and the thing was driven to its knees by the experience. Tall enough that its head was still over the counter, it reached over and shoveled the remaining bits into its open maw, slurping it all down hungrily. Had other things ever discovered something so wonderful, so delicious? Emma's monster had no mouth, so it would never be able to taste things, which made the thing feel a bit sad for the monster. The thing went to pat her on the head, 
changing paws at the last minute to keep from smearing the girl's hair with smelly fish guts. Satisfied that the girl's hunger would soon be sated, the thing sat on the upholstered stool that sat next to the wood stove and licked its bloodied paw clean, enjoying the sensation and experience of taste. Do you like it? She asked the thing around a mouthful of fish. The thing grunted in what it hoped was an affirmative noise at her, accompanying the noise with a curt nod. The girl looked pleased and then smiled at the thing. The thing was leaning against the wall, watching the girl finish her odd meal, when the monster returned with an enormous clam. The thing gestured to the half-full water bucket next to the kitchen counter, and the monster deposited it there. The thing would deal with the clam as a future meal. It growled its thanks to the monster, which waved a companionable tentacle in the thing's direction before it returned to the safety of its lair under the bed. It wasn't that the thing realized what time it was and stood. The little girl looked up at the thing. Do you have to go hide from the sun, she asked it. The thing gave a growl of assent, cringing a little as it saw the faint glow of the slowly rising sun on the eastern horizon. As much as it felt a need to watch over the little girl, its fear of the light drove it into the safety of the bedroom closet, where it huddled in a corner. It did not need to sleep, so instead it spent its time thinking about what had happened and wondering what it should and would do now. Although it had only met one other nighttime terror in its existence, it knew that this had never happened before. Sometime later, the thing was startled out of its reverie when a small, warm body slid under its long, hairy arm. The little girl laid her head on its long thighs and pulled the blanket she had dragged into the closet with her, not only over herself, but over as much of the thing as she could manage. Good night, thing, she breathed and raised her head to kiss its hairy cheek before laying back down once again. The thing put a wondering paw to the oddly blessed cheek, and then looked back down at little Emma, who had already fallen into slumber. The thing wondered, not for the first time, what had happened to little Emma's mother, as it had not yet been awake for the night when she had taken her leave. Was her exit willing or unwilling? Unless someone or something appeared to answer that question, it would remain unanswered. The thing returned its attention to its diminutive charge, who slept deeply, giving soft, adorable snores as she did. The slightly fishy-smelling exhalations reminded the thing of the wonders of eating, and the thought of trying new kinds of food piqued its interest and imagination. For only half a moment, it wondered if the little girls tasted it as good as the fish had, but dismissed the idea out of hand before leaning back to resume its watch over its new charge. It promised itself that it would learn whatever was necessary to keep her safe until she was able to be on her own. So, how did you like chapter two? Is it holding your interest? What would you think you would have done if you were the child in this situation? Would you have been afraid and followed the status quo? Or would you have embraced the situation as little Emma has? Something to think about, surely. We'll see what happens when the story continues next week. Speaking of next week, I'm already working on next Monday's podcast. We've got a Halloween theme going on, so that will mean that things will be more of a horror theme than a fantasy theme. Rather than an interview situation, the plan is to have things be more of a discussion this next week, but you'll have to tune in to get specifics. When I'm not working on the podcast, I'm doing a lot of writing, not only on The Thing in the Closet, but on the current Tales of the Dragon Guard story, Cal's Heart. I'm also working on getting Sarah's Fire produced in an audio format, so that's also taking time out of my busy day. But I will say that I'm really enjoying putting the podcast together. It's not just for me. It's for other creatives out there who want to share their thoughts and ideas with others, and perhaps to share some of what they've got with others. If you are a creative looking to share yourself, please contact me at shamari at outlook.com. 
That's S-U-M-A-I-R-E at Outlook.com to talk about setting up a convenient time for an interview for this podcast. Thank you again for coming by for a listen. If you feel so inspired, please consider a donation to the podcast. It's not required, but I certainly wouldn't say no. This has been Anna Rose with Sci-Fi and Fantasy Light and Dark. Have a fantabulous day.